You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We're happy to announce the podcast is sponsored this week by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Lincoln and the Fight for Peace by John Avlon, which is available now. Lincoln and the Fight for Peace explores Abraham Lincoln's commitment to an unconditional surrender followed by a magnanimous peace at the end of the Civil War. While his assassination left his work incomplete, his vision would inspire future generations in their quest for peace. Lincoln and the Fight for Peace is available now wherever books are sold. It's also available as a downloadable ebook and audiobook. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 378 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And Tracy won't actually be with us for this show. She is off visiting family and left me to hold down the fort and to get this episode out to you guys. So that's what I will do. And with this show, you and I will take a look at the immediate aftermath of Pickett's charge. Then we'll get the Confederates on their way as they skedaddle a day after the charge and start their retreat back to Virginia. All right. Sound good? Okay. Let's get started. Pickett's charge took less than one hour from the time Pickett's, Pettigrew's, and Trimble's troops stepped off from Seminary Ridge until their shattered ranks came limping back. Their losses were simply staggering. Numbers vary, but of the nearly 13,000 men who probably made the charge, at least 5,300 became casualties, either dead, wounded, captured, or missing. Some sources place the number closer to 6,000. George Pickett lost nearly half his division in the attack, including all three of his brigade commanders, with Garnett killed, Armistead mortally wounded, and Kemper severely wounded. Of the 15 regimental commanders in the division, eight were either killed or mortally wounded, while five others sustained non-fatal wounds. Some units were almost entirely wiped out. 
Company H of the 56th Virginia began the attack with 37 men. By the time it was over, only one remained. Losses in Pettigrew's division exceeded 40%, with Pettigrew's old brigade under Marshall suffering the highest losses, followed closely by Archer's brigade under Fry, and then losses were also severe among Joe Davis's Mississippians and North Carolinians. Johnston Pettigrew had been wounded in the attack, as had Isaac Trimble, bringing up the supporting brigades under Lowrance and Lane. Burkett Fry was wounded and captured, and Colonel James Marshall was dead. The 11th Mississippi of Davis's brigade suffered an incredible 90% loss, including every single member of Company A, the University Grays. The 26th North Carolina, which had suffered 500 casualties on July 1st, lost another 130 on July 3rd, and after the charge, could muster scarcely 70 men in its ranks. 28 battle flags from more than half the units that made the attack were captured by victorious federal troops on Cemetery Ridge. A Virginia lieutenant later summarized the attack by saying, We gained nothing but glory and lost our bravest men. Federal losses along Cemetery Ridge numbered somewhere between 1,700 and 2,000 men, with Webb's Philadelphia Brigade, positioned at the angle and near the copse of trees, suffering by far the highest casualties of all the units engaged. As the fighting subsided, heartfelt cheers rent the air along the Federal line, punctuated by the occasional sharp crack of a musket or sporadic deep boom of artillery. As retreating rebel survivors streamed back to Seminary Ridge, federal troops advanced forward toward the Emmitsburg Road, gathering up hundreds of prisoners. As many as 800 unwounded Confederates were herded to the rear as prisoners of war. On their way to the rear, many no doubt saw an ecstatic Alexander Hayes with several members of his staff, galloping back and forth along the line of his division, dragging some of the captured rebel battle flags on the ground. Over on Seminary Ridge, Robert E. Lee could hear the Federal troops cheering at the tops of their lungs. The Yankee soldiers reveled in the dawning realization that they had just taken the best the rebels could throw at them and had emerged victorious. After the cheering died away, though, many Federals were overwhelmed by the scale of the bloody carnage now spread out before them. One New Yorker wrote, quote, The havoc upon the field in our front was appalling. The dead lay at intervals, one upon the other, torn and mangled, and were strewn over the field in every conceivable condition. From among the slain arose the wounded, who struggled to reach our line. Some, in their vain endeavor, fell to rise no more. 
Alexander Webb walked among the fallen near Cushing's Cannon and counted 42 dead Virginians in the area where Armistead had been wounded. As a captured Confederate officer was being herded past him, the rebel looked around at the seemingly meager number of blue-clad troops and asked contemptuously if this was all the men Hayes had defending his line. If I had known this was all you have, I would not have surrendered, he said. In reply, Hayes, in the Civil War equivalent of pointing at the scoreboard, snarled, Well, go back and try it again. But there would be no trying it again. As the shattered ranks of the assault force came straggling back from their bloody errand to Cemetery Ridge, Robert E. Lee rode among the survivors, endeavoring to encourage the men and attempting to get them to form up again and prepare to repel the federal counterattack that he expected would surely be coming. As he walked his horse among them, Lee told the men, Fall back to the rear and reform your lines as well as you can. It was not your fault this time. It was all mine. When Lee met a distressed Cadmus Wilcox, who complained that he couldn't rally his Alabama brigade, one of the two supporting brigades that had advanced last and been roughly handled, Lee told him, Never mind, General, never mind. It is all my fault, and you young men must help me out the best you can. The important thing now was to prepare for the coming Yankee counterattack, and so Lee continued riding through the returning survivors and repeating the same message, saying, All this will come right in the end. We'll talk it over afterwards. But in the meantime, all good men must rally. We want all good and true men just now. Meanwhile, George Pickett was providing little help in rallying his troops. Unable to come to grips with the extent of the disaster that had just befallen his division, Pickett was distraught. To Longstreet, who tried to buck up his old friend, a weeping Pickett blurted, General, I am ruined! My division is gone! It is destroyed! Fortunately for Lee, the federal counterattack that he feared never came. On Cemetery Ridge, Winfield Scott Hancock, who had refused to leave the field until the Confederate attack was defeated, was finally carried to the rear for treatment of his wound. But first he took the time to dictate a message to George Meade, reporting the extent of his corps' victory that afternoon, and urging, quote, If the 6th and 5th Corps have pressed up, the enemy will be destroyed. In fact, before and during the attack, Meade had ordered reinforcements to move to the center of his line from throughout the army. By the time the defeated rebels streamed back towards Seminary Ridge, Meade had available in that sector 18 brigades from four different corps. He could have thrown those troops at Seminary Ridge, or he could have launched the 5th and 6th Corps 
at Hood's and McClaw's divisions in the area of the Round Tops. But neither option looked appealing to Meade. Any major federal advance would have been a hastily thrown together, improvised affair. And besides, the Confederate positions were strong. The ground in front of them was either rough and broken, in the area of the Round Tops, or it was open and exposed, leading over to Seminary Ridge. And so Meade prudently decided not to risk it. Having withstood a series of determined Confederate assaults yesterday and today, Meade wasn't about to abandon his strong defensive position and attack across the same ground that had caused Lee so much grief. And so the armies remained in place for the rest of that day and into the next, with no significant combat between major units. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Because of its dramatic nature and tremendous losses, and because it would later come to be regarded by so many as the high watermark of the Confederate war effort, Pickett's charge has come to dominate the history of the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg. But there were other actions that Friday, each involving the mounted arms of both armies. We've already covered, here on the podcast, the July 3rd action at East Cavalry Field, when Jeb Stuart had a go at moving around the Federal right flank, determined to drive the Union cavalry from that area 
and perhaps wreak havoc on the Yankees' rear areas by threatening their main supply line along the Baltimore Pike. But David Gregg, with his two brigades of Federal horsemen, plus a brigade of Michigan cavalrymen under George Custer, which were borrowed from Kilpatrick's division, well, they had stymied all of Stewart's attacks, thus successfully protecting the Army of the Potomac's right flank and rear. As part of the action at East Cavalry Field, 24-year-old George Custer, who had been jumped from captain to brigadier general less than a week before, led a desperate Union saber charge. Reckless of his personal safety, Custer miraculously escaped injury, allowing him to keep a rendezvous with fate in the sagebrush-covered hills of Montana 13 years after the Battle of Gettysburg. The other cavalry action on July 3rd played out several miles south of town on the wooded and boulder-strewn fields at the base of Big Round Top. There, the aggressive Federal Cavalry Commander, Judson Kilpatrick, lived up to his nickname, Kill Cavalry, by ordering a senseless charge against the enemy soldiers of Evander Law's brigade on the far right of the Confederate line. You see, having learned of the repulse of Pickett's charge in the center of the line, Kilpatrick believed he could cause additional grief to the enemy by launching an attack against the Confederate right flank and rear. He called on Elon Farnsworth, who, like Custer, had been jumped from captain to brigadier general less than a week before. But Farnsworth objected to the order, saying it was sheer madness to attack so strong an infantry position on horseback and over such rough ground. But Kilpatrick ordered the charge anyway, with predictable results. The 1st West Virginia and 18th Pennsylvania cavalry regiments were very quickly turned back, while the 1st Vermont, with Farnsworth in the lead, was able to momentarily penetrate the Confederate line. But it wasn't long before the rebels rallied and lashed the Federal horsemen with devastating volleys of musketry. Farnsworth fell dead, riddled with bullets, while his men raced off and cut their way back through to safety. After that, late on the afternoon of July 3rd, Lee pulled back Hood's and McClaw's divisions. He pulled them back to Seminary Ridge, withdrawing them from the advanced positions they had won at such great cost in blood just 24 hours before. When a regiment of Georgians was slow in going, the Yankees gave them a firm nudge to help them along. A brigade of the Pennsylvania Reserves probed forward into Rose's Woods, precipitating a sharp little clash with the Georgians. Although there would be some deadly skirmishing that would take place the next day, July 4th, the Pennsylvanians, in later years, would nonetheless point to this action late on the 3rd and lay claim to having fired the last shots of the Battle of Gettysburg.
A heavy summer rain began to fall late on the evening of July 3rd, as though the gods were intent on making the soldiers of both armies miserable, those who had somehow survived the storm of battle. The Battle of Gettysburg was over, and while the work of the soldiers may have been finished, for the surgeons and the hundreds of others helping to care for the multitudes of wounded, well, their work would continue well into the night, and, in fact, would continue unabated for weeks ahead. Confederate casualties on July 3rd came to well over 8,000 men. Federal losses were scarcely 3,000. That lopsided ratio more than evened out the totals for the whole three-day battle. The casualty totals for the entire battle exceeded anything in the previous experience of the men in each army. Although no figure can be precise for any Civil War engagement, modern consensus places federal losses at 3,155 killed in action, 14,530 wounded or mortally wounded, and 5,365 missing, for a total of just over 23,000. The number of Confederate casualties is harder to fix, but it's thought the Army of Northern Virginia suffered losses of 3,900 killed in action, 18,735 wounded or mortally wounded, and 5,425 captured or missing, for a total of just over 28,000. When the Confederates retreated from Gettysburg, they left behind at least 5,000 of their wounded, bringing the total number of rebels who were taken prisoner to more than 10,000. By nightfall on July 3rd, as the summer rain fell from the heavens, 40,000 officers and men from both armies, the dead and the wounded, lay either on the battlefield or in field hospitals. Even for the veteran soldiers grown accustomed to the wreckage and carnage of battle, the field at Gettysburg presented a horrid spectacle. Sergeant Thomas Marbecker of the 11th New Jersey left a haunting account of the battle's aftermath. Quote, Upon the open fields, like sheaves bound by the reaper, in crevices of the rocks, behind fences, trees, and buildings, in thickets, by stream or wall or hedge, wherever the battle had raged or their weakening steps could carry them, lay the dead. Some, with faces bloated and blackened beyond recognition, lay with their glassy eyes staring up. Others, with faces downward and clenched hands filled with grass or earth, which told of the agony of the last moments. All around was the wreck the battlestorm leaves in its wake. Broken caissons, dismounted guns, small arms bent and twisted by the storm or dropped or scattered by disabled hands, dead and bloated horses, torn and ragged equipments, and all the sorrowful wreck 
that the waves of battle leave at their ebb. And over all, hugging the earth like a fog, poisoning any breath, the stench of decaying humanity. Robert E. Lee had gambled and lost, and he knew it, and on the night of July 3rd, he began to make plans for his army's retreat back to Virginia. He had staked everything on the pounding artillery bombardment and the great infantry charge that day, and with the bloody failure of the attack, he was forced to admit that he was going to have to cede the initiative to Meade, and that his, Lee's, only hope was that the Federals would launch a major attack on Saturday, July 4th, and that the Army of Northern Virginia would still have enough fight left in it to give the Yankees a bloody nose, and in that way, Lee would be able to at least salvage some sort of backhanded victory at Gettysburg. However, George Meade would not oblige Lee, except for some sporadic and deadly skirmishing on July 4th, The day was spent quietly, with the soldiers resting, and many writing letters home. Others helped to gather and care for the wounded, while some got to work burying the dead. The rain had let up some overnight, but picked up again at daybreak on the 4th. That afternoon, thunderstorms rolled in, and the rain fell in torrents, adding to the misery of the many wounded who still lay out in the open and making the already grim task of burying the dead even more unpleasant. The irony of it being Independence Day wasn't lost on the soldiers in either army. But even in the Army of the Potomac, there wouldn't be any widespread celebrations on the 4th, just a few small observances As one New York soldier wrote to his mother that day, While you were celebrating, we were busy burying the dead. The Army of Northern Virginia spent much of Saturday gathering as many of its wounded as possible and loading them on wagons, which were being readied for the journey south. The Confederate Army's extensive wagon train would precede the combat units in the retreat from Gettysburg. The miles-long column of wagons was loaded down with both plunder taken in Pennsylvania and thousands of the less seriously wounded. The wagon train would be slow-moving and vulnerable and would need a head start. So late on the night of July 3rd, Lee ordered Brigadier General John Imboden, commander of one of the Army's less effective cavalry brigades, to escort the wagon train which was to start out late on the afternoon of the 4th. And, late on Saturday afternoon, through rain that was falling in sheets, Imboden set out with his long, sad caravan of misery right on schedule. Meanwhile, Lee had pulled Ewell's Corps back to the west side of Gettysburg so that the Army of Northern Virginia formed a long, straight line along Seminary Ridge and up to Oak Hill. Near sunset, and just several hours after Imboden set off with the vast procession of wagons, 
Lee's combat formations began their march away from Gettysburg. A.P. Hill's troops, who had kicked off the brawl three days earlier, led the retreat, followed by Longstreet's thinned ranks, and finally Ewell's men bringing up the rear. Also marching with the column were thousands of Federal prisoners being guarded by the Virginians of Pickett's shattered division. Lee had hoped to unload this burden earlier that day when he proposed, under a flag of truce, an exchange of prisoners. But Meade had no authority to agree to such an arrangement, and so he had turned down Lee's request. And so the Confederates, late on the 4th of July, marched away from Gettysburg through the rain and darkness. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is A Strange and Blighted Land, Gettysburg, The Aftermath of a Battle, by Gregory A. Coco. Don't forget you can find a list of all our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Then, as the curtain comes down on this show, we want to give a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thank them for their support of the podcast. So, thank you to Kent E., Dan and Margie S., D.W., Eric, and Patrick. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hey y'all, just a reminder that we're sponsored this week by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Lincoln and the Fight for Peace by John Avlon, which is available now. Lincoln and the Fight for Peace explores Abraham Lincoln's commitment to an unconditional surrender, followed by a magnanimous peace at the end of the Civil War. While his assassination left his work incomplete, his vision would inspire future generations in their quest for peace. Lincoln and the Fight for Peace is available now wherever books are sold. It's also available as a downloadable ebook and audiobook.